Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. Our guest today is a name we've mentioned frequently on this podcast, Liberty RPF. Now, it's difficult to define exactly what Liberty writes about, and that might explain why we find it so fascinating. Over the past year, Liberty has taught me about the best AI tools for image generation, SSD hard drive scams happening on Amazon, the best tools to sharpen my kitchen knives, the ideal Detroit pan pizza recipe. Do you sense some range here in terms of the content? What I would say is Liberty is a great curator of content, and it's very different from being an aggregator of content. He follows his own curiosity and basically acts as a Sherpa for his audience. It's a role that feels increasingly needed as we live in a world of infinite content. During this conversation, we talk about that role, how Liberty has approached his craft and ended up in this position, and how it's led to new opportunities like Infinite Media at O'Shaughnessy Ventures. Please enjoy this conversation with Liberty RPF and look for a link in the show notes to some of his writing. All right, Liberty. I mentioned a little bit of this before we hit record, but coming up with an outline for this discussion was embarrassingly difficult. Dom and I were racking our brains before you hopped on the Zoom call in terms of where to start. And I think there's a lot to touch on. We're fascinated by what you do. Forgive us if we just make some observations and ask for you to respond to those observations and don't form clear questions. But thinking about where to start, I thought you wrote recently about this concept that not every experiment has to last forever. And it was something that was very interesting to me. And I think it has wide ranging tentacles in terms of what it can impact across the different things you cover. So maybe you could start there just with that simple idea, which I think is something that doesn't seem that grand and special when you first hear it, but I actually think has a lot more power than people might give it credit for. First, thanks for having me. I think it's going to be fun. Yeah, that's a good one. I think the seed of that idea was something that Ben Thompson mentioned on one of his many podcasts about how sometimes there's this tendency for companies to want to live forever, even if they've run out of good stuff. They don't have a good product, their culture sucks, everything sucks, but there's this mismatch of incentives between management and the shareholders, and the management just wants to keep it running forever because they're getting paid by the year. And maybe the best thing to do for the company would be to just run off and try to do it as gracefully and profitably as possible, which is cool in the corporate world. But I think this applies more widely about every other experiment. And if you go in with that mentality that, okay, this one doesn't have to work, I think you run more experiments, you try more things, and you have more chances of having one of them work. 
people who are very precious about their thing. They overthink things before because maybe unconsciously they think that this is the one. I'm betting everything on this one. Well, it brings paralysis. And I don't know, just trying more things more lightly, I think, leads to a more fun life, but also probably to finding that thing that's the one. The question it brings up, for my mind anyway, is how do you know when you should move on or when you should persevere through the pain? Because there are plenty of examples of very successful companies or humans who at certain periods in their lives have experienced true pain. They're on life support, if you like, and they've somehow found a way through it. There are also plenty of cancer examples where, as you say, yeah, it was good for a period of time and actually let's shut it down and move on to something completely different. From a mindset thing, when do you know what to do? That's a good question. I don't know, but here's how I think about it. So when the external world is not biting, it's not buying your thing, it's not liking it, it's not appreciating it, I don't think that matters that much for a while. I think as long as you have the intrinsic motivation, as long as you love it, as long as that's still there, I think it's a good sign to keep going because you're probably not that unique if you love it that much. There are probably your tribe out there somewhere. Maybe you just haven't found them yet, or maybe you just haven't got good enough at it that they notice you or whatever. But as long as you have that thing from the inside, I think that it's a good sign. If Even if you get some external success, but you've lost the fire on the inside, that's the first sign to, okay, either take a break, see if it comes back, but if it doesn't, move on to something else. Life's too short to do things you hate, even if it pays the bill. That would be the way I think about it. But you'll never be sure. You could quit something because you think it's done. And maybe if you had stuck with it a little longer, you would have gotten the fire back. It would have worked. And so the fact that you can never be sure, I don't know, it's part of the game. If it was easy, everybody could do it. You could make an algorithm for it. <laughs> there would be less reward for the people who can get it, right? Yeah, that could be your mental demise or it can be very freeing. Not ever knowing for sure is one of those things you can look at with two very different lenses. You tapped into something there, though, that I think is really interesting to set up the conversation about finding your tribe. And if I took your Venn diagram of different topics that you cover, and just to give examples, it will be in one newsletter, you'll have ASML, something about semiconductors, Detroit pan pizza, how to spot someone who's drowning, truly the most unique Venn diagram. Somehow, I am always captivated by at least two to three, potentially more topics in each of these. But if I step back, all of the advice is to be a specialist, have constraints. You operate completely different as a generalist. And I think that exemplifies it. So that's an observation. What do you say to that in terms of finding your tribe with such unique, different topics all involved with that? My Venn diagram map is not circles. It's like a big blob. But the dominant strategy in this modern world is to specialize. That's the way to get ahead. That's the way to have a successful career. But if everybody is leaning on one side of the ship, it creates an opportunity on the other side for someone to zig when everybody's zagging. So some of us out there, generalists, just don't want to spend all their time on one thing. And the way I'm looking at it, I'm trying to do exploration as a service for others because there's so much out in the world, so many things, so many books, websites, companies, scientific papers, whatever. There's so much out there. What are the odds that everyone has found everything that would fit the shape of their mind? There's a phrase I have put on my website that's your favorite thing is out there. You just haven't found it yet. Because I'm very curious by nature, I try to just keep looking, follow my curiosity all the time and provide that as a way to inject some exploration in people's lives who may not have time for it, or I don't know, maybe they don't have the drive yet because they don't know these things exist, but by just showing them, they'll dive deeper into them. And in general, I think humans are very bad at predicting what will make us happy. 
So we are very mimetic. We look around what our other people are doing and we just copy that. And that can lead everybody to follow very similar paths that may not make them happy. So I feel like this exploration versus exploitation algorithm is very skewed right now. And I'm trying to, as little as I can, push it back a little bit in the other direction and just help others find their good stuff. But it's also all about, I'm my first reader. I just follow my own curiosity. I never think about, oh, what will people like? Because if I did, none of the stuff I've been doing would have been done, right? The obvious thing would have been, okay, I've been a private investor for some year. Let's write about investing. Let's make stock recommendations that talk about valuation and this and that. And that's the way to sell something obvious. I only focus on the stuff that's more fun to me because spreadsheets are not fun. So it could be about a book I've read, a film I've seen, what's coming from the world of science these days or engineering or enterprise software. It could be anything, but as long as I'm very interested in it, I figure there are some people out there who are similar to me and will find it interesting. And the best way to be interesting is often to be interested. If someone's faking it, riding a wave of something that's popular, I don't know, it shows and it kills that authenticity that's what's going to make you stand out from all these other millions of sources of information out there. An example I often use is there's a podcast I've been listening to for over 10 years. It's called Accidental Tech Podcast. It's mostly about Apple stuff, but technology in general. And so I've heard the three hosts of that podcast talking in my ears for hundreds and hundreds of hours, more than most of my close friends, maybe only my wife that I've heard more. So from my brain's point of view, these are close friends. There's a very strong parasocial relationship with these people. I could maybe get the same facts somewhere else, but something would be missing. My friends are not there. And so I feel like this is what I love about this long tail of very authentic media. And so that's what I'm trying to do. I write about my kids, I write about my hobbies, I write about stuff that I do. And I figure someone reading is very, very quickly going to figure out, okay, this is not for me. And they're going to self-select out. But the people who stick around, hopefully, are getting something pretty unique and we can develop this relationship. I'm trying to make it two ways as much as possible. I answer every comment, every email. I've created Discord. I'm trying not to make it just about me. I'm trying to just have it as a beacon for people with similar interests. You mentioned the world is trending towards specialism and what you're doing in terms of generalism and curation is maybe on the other end of that spectrum. If specialism is perhaps a feature of our education system, how, A, is curation in your view a skill? And B, how would you develop an educational system or even a curriculum that would teach people how to better curate things in amidst the sea of information that we've got today? I think the art of selecting interesting things, the art of curation is something that's very, very hard to describe. And if you could do it, you could make an algorithm for it. And Google and YouTube and Facebook and whatever could do it for you. But what these algorithms are doing right now is very, I'd call it pro-cyclical. They figure out what you like and they'll give you more of it and more and more and a mountain of it. But they won't find that thing that you like that is not directly connected to the things that you currently like. They won't explore for you, or at least not in the way that a human with similar tastes or whose taste you trust would do. So I think that's the esoteric skill that's there. It's just using the human brain's pattern recognition capabilities of I've been reading books and listening to music and watching films and reading about companies and tech and all that for I don't know, 30 years or something. And all that swirling around in there and making some connections. And once in a while, something pings. It's like, oh, that's really interesting. I'm going to put it in a newsletter. And hopefully it's interesting for others. But I can't explain, right, the algebra that goes into it. And oh, yeah, it's because this topic always does well. And I don't know. So it's a fuzzy answer. But I think if it wasn't fuzzy, it would be super easy for some AI to do. So I am happy that is a direct. If we go and identify the problem, or not necessarily problem, but the opportunity, it's that the amount of content that is now out there is unlimited, it's infinite. There are always things out there that are just waiting to be found. 
And I think in the previous world, you had brands acting as curators. So you could open up the New York Times and get your business, get your sports, get a variety of different things. But it was coming from a corporation. I think as social media has come and there is different things hiding in all places of the internet, that has increased the need for somebody to be doing this individually. And where I'm going with this is, as time has gone on, I've noticed this with podcasts. I have certain people that I rely on to be on the frontier of exploration of introducing me to different guests. Patrick being one of them with Invest Like the Best, but even people like Tim Ferriss. You know they're going to identify some of these people maybe a year before they make it big. And they act as these curators in some way for me. And it's very difficult to move them out of the podium position because I have a certain amount of time and they become my trusted source for that. So where I'm going with this is, do you think that there are certain curators that will dominate the market? Or do you think it's going to be a very, very fragmented situation where you have different individuals that represent much smaller tribes? So the way I look at it is, I think very visually, so this may be hard for the listener, but imagine the big power lock curve. So in attention, there's Joe Rogan and people are at the peak. And then there's this long, 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 long tail. But it's not just one line. It's basically a bunch of tiny niches in there. And there's power laws within all of these niches. So a tiny niche about Dungeon and Dragon futuristic, mix three or four topics together and you get something unique. Dungeons and Dragons is pretty big, but Dungeons and Dragons for fans of, I don't know, anime fan fiction and Warhammer mixed together. That's super unique. And so someone is going to dominate that niche forever. And within that community, there may be a curator who's the person that people trust in there. And so I think it's going to be super fragmented, but it doesn't mean that the winners of a niche will graduate to the big top of the power dollar, which is not necessarily bad. Not everything has to be a fang stock. You can do very well with your thousand true fans, as Kevin Kelly would say. And the beauty of these niche things is that if you don't have to reach a billion people, you can be very, very specific to that group's interests and love, and you can serve them much better. They can have a much better time in their thing than if there's three channels on TV and everything has to be centered at the bell curve. And so everything has to be for everyone. So it's for no one in particular. So we're trading off different things. We're trading off the shared experience where everybody has seen Leave it to Beaver or whatever. Everybody can talk about it. That was cool. Or even recently, everybody talking about Sopranos on Monday morning or something. I kind of miss some of that. But I do love that if I fall in love with something, it's probably very, very specific to my own, the shape of my mind, as I would say. Would you consider yourself part of that long tail niche? Or would you consider yourself someone who could be in the Rogan category in 10 years? No, 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 no. I'm so niche. I'm very, very niche. The conjunction fallacy, the more things you combine together, the more specific it becomes. And so I'm like Deadwood and nuclear Soviet submarines and enterprise software and AI. And the more things I combine, the more niche I become. But I think the trade-off is that the people who like that stuff, they don't find it anywhere else. In business sense, I have very low churn. It's hard to convert people, but once they're there, it's like, well, where else am I going to go for that type of stuff? So it's all about trade-offs. Thankfully, my engine is the rest of the long tail. So my own thing is niche, but where I'm looking is very, very wide. If I had a very specific beat, if I'm like, I only cover enterprise software, easier to explain and it would be easier to know how I do things. Okay, I have these five main sources. I know these 50 people like send me DMs about enterprise software and I kind of rinse and repeat and I know what I'm doing. Then I can get good at that skill because it's very defined. But because my world is anything that interests me, I don't know how I do it. 
it's just I wake up in the morning and I look around for interesting stuff and I have a bunch of tabs opened and I have a Notion file that grows faster than shrinks. So it trends towards infinity of old topics that I never get time to write about. And I just pick in there and I have a bunch of friends in various industries and doing various things and they DM me interesting stuff. And it's just a very organic process. And it goes back to what we were saying. In some ways, it's tough because I don't know how, but it's good because it's very hard to replicate. It's just emergent property of just being me. You alluded to a problem there, which I'm fascinated to dive in on. In terms of attracting new followers to what you do, is a very difficult thing because it's hard for you to articulate exactly what it is. And often, in terms of virality, it tends to work because it's very specific and there's a big TAM, if you like. Do you have to rely mostly on word of mouth? And once you find some people, then they'll link you to a few more people that they know would enjoy your type of content? Or is there a different engine that you could plug in or that you do plug in to grow your audience? Basically, all of the best practices for growth are the exact opposite of what I've been doing for three years. (laughs) (laughs) I have very long titles that are just a jumble of topics. That's not catchy at all. It's not viral at all. People want to link to my stuff. Yeah, check out this edition. It's somewhere in there among the 25 things. It's very hard to link. Thankfully, Substack now is a, you can link inside of an edition to go directly to a section, but it's hard to describe. I write about, this year I've written a lot about AI. I've been having fun with it. Two years ago, I was writing more about enterprise software and cybersecurity or NVIDIA or whatever. So it's very hard to grow. So I have to go up one level. My audience is not people interested in X or Y, curious people. People want to learn about more things. Maybe they don't have time. And I've been surprised. I was expecting if... So when I started, one of my favorite newsletters was The Diff by Bern Obart. And on day one, he had 12,000 subscribers. And so I considered it to be a unit of measurement. So it's one Obart. And I was like, wow, 12,000 is amazing. If someday I get there, I'll be happy. And then all along, I was like, oh, 0.1 Obart, 0.2 Obart. And I was growing. And I was expecting, oh, maybe in five or 10 years, I can get there. Three years into it, I'm now at 19,000. So I'm getting closer to two Hobarts, which I never expected. And most of my growth has been since Substack started the recommendation feature, which allows other newsletters to tell their subscribers about me. And I maybe, I don't know, I'm very grateful to have something like 120 other newsletters pointing to me. So maybe this is the way. If you can't describe it, if you can't target a specific market, I can't do any of that, but hopefully... If enough people just like it and just want to point people to it that way, that seems to be the main growth engine for me. And do you view it as something that could be your income source for the foreseeable future if you wanted it to be? Or is it attached to different opportunities that come in from having that audience and all the different things that come in through your DMs, emails, carrier pigeon? I have a weird life journey, carrier, whatever. So... For the past maybe eight or nine years before starting a newsletter, I was a private investor with only my own capital, which I had accumulated working before that, saving 50 to 70% of my income for a decade, doing almost a fire thing. But I was very interested in investing. And so I never wanted to wear a tie and go work for somewhere else or move city or whatever. So I had to invest, but my own money. So I build that up. But as I was doing that, it was very interesting. I've always said that investing is cool because it's a lens through which you understand the world. A lot of the most interesting stuff that humans do is they get together and they do something very hard. And to do that, they form a company. And so if you want to understand a lot of the world, you can do that through companies. And because I'm a generalist, it's like, well, I started with, okay, Berkshire. And then you learn about insurance and then some of the smaller companies. And then, oh, there's Fairfax and Markel and Lucadia at the time. And then you branch out into other things. And years later, and aerospace and finance, rail infrastructure and enterprise. 
But as I was doing that, something was missing in my life. And a friend of mine who's a novelist told me, don't you miss creating and publishing? And my answer at the time was, oh, I'm writing so many notes, man. I have 300,000 words of notes at the end of the year and document. But it's not the same because if you only write privately, your brain just skips steps. And it's like, yeah, nobody's going to see it. It doesn't matter. It's not the same. And so in July 2020, I started the Substack on the whim. I read something about how online, if you don't own your own presence, it could go away at any time. Twitter bans you. And I was banned at a certain point, permanently suspended because I was paraphrasing something that Putin was doing and Twitter doesn't understand irony. So I got banned for it. So anyway, at any time, you can lose your existence on these social networks that you don't control. So I created a newsletter as a place just to have my own thing. But then format matters so much. As soon as I started, I realized that even if you do a long thread on Twitter, it's never going to be the same as having the canvas of a big blank page where you can put tons of links and pictures. And also on Twitter, it feels like sending it in public while a newsletter is more opt-in, right? So it's like, if you don't like my stuff, you don't have to subscribe. But here I can be more myself. I can be queer, queer or weirder or whatever. I can go farther into my things because it's my private home. So after I started the newsletter, I expected it to be a hobby and very, very quickly it became a thing. I spent all my time in it because I loved it. Then maybe eight months into it, I turned on uh, payments. People could pay. It was all free, no paywall, but people could pay if almost the Patreon model, right? Voluntarily. And a lot of people did. I didn't expect that. And it became my full-time job. Then later, I added a paywall because at the end of 2021, the market, the mood changed. And now people didn't subscribe to anything anymore. So I figured maybe a paywall was the way to make it a little bit more obvious that I need to pay the bills. And then it was my full-time job. I made a living with the Substack. It was great. I wasn't looking for another job. And then Jim O'Shaughnessy came to me and basically told me, I'm building this thing. And... The way he described it, OSV and Infinite Media and all that, it's super aligned with what I'm doing. He basically said, keep doing what you're doing. Just keep finding great stuff out there, great content, great creators, but you can do it for us. And we have the means and the infrastructure to amplify them, to help them, to publish their books, to make their documentaries, to do so much more. That's what I'm doing with most of my days now, but it's such a good alignment with the newsletter that I'm doing both and one reinforces the other. A bunch of people know me because of the newsletter. And I get to know them that way. And then they can maybe be a good fit for OSV. And if I do something cool at OSV and we have a bunch of projects, they're not public yet, but they're going to come out at some point. I can't wait for people to see them. But when they do, I can write about them in the newsletter. And there's no conflict there because I wouldn't work on something unless I was really interested and loved it. And if I love the stuff, I'm putting it in the newsletter. And so it's all very aligned and very easy. It doesn't feel like, oh, there's a day job I have to do to punch in, punch out, and then I can do my fun project. It's all my fun project now. Yeah, it improves the point of the value of an audience where so many interesting things can come across your desk, for lack of a better analogy, just by putting things out there and creating for the world. And anyone that knows Jim or doesn't know Jim, the apple didn't fall far from the tree with Patrick, two lifelong learners. And that is loosely how I would define people that would be interested in your content. But as you examine your audience, are there any unique demographic consistencies or anything unique about your audience in that weird Venn diagram that you have that attracted me to the content, but is very difficult to put a finger on? I'm reminded of something that Tim Urban said. He's like, he's writing for Tim's. Just imagining a copies of him, a big stadium full of Tim's. And he's like, I don't do that explicitly that way, but it's similar. I don't even imagine the audience. I just think this is cool. Just got to put it out there. And something that David Senra influenced me on is 
at first, I think I wasn't precise how I talked to the reader. And he said, when I'm recording a podcast, I'm not like, hey, guys, there's no guys. It's me and you. You and me are doing this. I'm talking to you. And now I always write the newsletter to one person, not a general audience, not a stadium, not a guys or amorphous blob. It's you. I don't know who the you is, but I want it to be one person. And so now I'm writing just for one person. Do you visualize that person? No, that's the thing. It's abstract, but maybe I'm a cerebral person. But even me, I live in my brain. I'm an abstract person. So that's how I think of the audience too. Another fuzzy thing, but I guess I'm a fuzzy person. <laughs> Dom pictures a stadium full of doms. <laughs> just visualize that. No, I do think there's something interesting. We're doing this little campaign now. Listen here. Basically, the idea of that you can listen to podcasts anywhere. So take advantage of that. Go outside. And what's been fascinating is all these images are coming back from all over the world. Really unique shots of different places that I've never heard of. In Canada, unique islands in Canada, in the desert, in Thailand. And I thought to myself, we send these follow-up emails to some of our guests saying, picture a stadium full of X thousand people and a roaring crowd. And I thought to myself, maybe we should send these pictures and be like, this is how far your message is reaching. It's all over the world in some of the most unique places. And people are listening to your voice in their ears. I don't know. It's a very different way to visualize it, but pretty impactful just in the early days of doing this. That's really cool. That's something that's very easy to forget when you're scrolling through Twitter or whatever, is that there's a person behind every avatar, every username. There's someone at a keyboard over there somewhere. That's something I should do with my newsletter. If people want to share like where they're reading it, or I have a podcast too, where they're listening to it, or that would be interesting. That would be because there's this weird thing about you tend to project what you know into your audience too. But then I get emails from people, okay, they're a surgeon in this place, or they live in Singapore or Taiwan, or you don't even think of the possibilities of where things could reach. Yeah. The only certainty is it will surprise you. You mentioned earlier, and you say this on your about section of your Substack that you're trying to help your audience and people just in general find their favorite thing. The notion that everyone has a favorite thing or something that they love and often people go their whole lives are ever locking in on the thing that gives them so much energy that they want to do it over and over and over again. I have tried to go down this rabbit hole a number of times and I think I'm getting closer to it. But the thing that I found particularly striking is that the gravitational pull back to what you know is so incredibly strong. Exploring new frontiers, genuinely different things that you've never been to before or seen or experienced or listened to or watched is incredibly difficult because people talk about wandering. But the reality is that people wander for the day and then go back home at nighttime. True exploration where you just leave home with a briefcase or nothing and just see where the world can take you is incredibly difficult. So how do you encourage people who are currently in jobs or trying to find something that really fills them up, how can you nudge them to try and find their favorite thing? Obviously, step one would be reading your newsletter. What's step two? So there's a saying in French, which is la petite vient à manger, which translates to something like hunger comes as you're eating. The more you eat, the more you're hungry. It's revealed preferences. If you say, oh, I really want to read more books, something I've been struggling with, paper books, I don't read as much as I want. But then if I never do it, do I really want to? Or I want to be the person that has read a bunch of books, but I don't do it. And so at some point, you just got to take some action steps. I think the other thing that people do is that they judge things too quickly because something new, if it's good, if something is good enough to become a passion and to last for years, it's probably pretty complex and deep. If you're playing a game of tic-tac-toe, well, the floor is very low, but the ceiling is very low too. It doesn't satisfy for very long. The best games are the infinite games where 
maybe the floor is very high. It's very hard to get started, but the ceiling is incredibly high and you can keep improving and learning and discovering stuff for years. That's why to me, investing is a game. Technology is a game. Science is a game because there's always new stuff. There's always stuff I haven't looked at yet that you can look at those things as games. But even if you want to go to the gym to work out or CrossFit or any of these things are games where the unknown, who can be afraid of the unknown, this can be intimidating starting a new thing. And then you try it and it sucks. It's like, okay, this sucks. And you stop. Well, okay, try it for a month. Do these longer experiments. They don't have to last forever. <laughs> Stick with it for long enough that you can be sure that it's not for you. I think too many people bounce off things that maybe they'd love if they just either stuck with them longer or maybe found someone to be their Sherpa, their guide into it. If you find someone that already loves something, that's usually pretty contagious. And maybe that's one of the services I try to provide because I'm very enthusiastic about a bunch of stuff. And I think sometimes people, the fact that you love Deadwood so much, it what made me check it out. I wasn't going to watch some cowboy show, but you just loved it so much. I had to check it out. That part can be part of the service too. To the listener too, right? If you really love something, share it with your friends, with your family. Don't try to be like, oh, this is a weird thing. It's, I don't want to impose. No, no. Sometimes sharing the enthusiasm is the spark that's needed. You definitely represent a Sherpa, I think, for your audience, myself included in that. Do you think that the wave continues where it just continues to move to individual Sherpas doing things? Or do you think there are places for brands in this grander digital infinite media world? I'm just trying to separate the two because obviously the leverage of a brand is significantly stronger versus an individual where there is a capped limitation to what you can be doing. And I just wonder, Dom and I were talking about this before recording, is this a bundling, unbundling thing where it'll be cyclical? Or is it just a secular change where the individuals are the Sherpas now and the brands continue to get less and less power? If I had to guess, the internet genie is not going back in the bottle. And so the stable configuration of things is probably a smile curve where on one side you have the gigantic scaled brands. Most of them are super old because you don't create a new New York Times or Wall Street Journal easily. And so they're shelling points where everybody focuses on for certain things. But it's a trade-off. They reach a lot of people, but they're bland. They have to be for everybody. And in the middle, there's a wasteland where there's these media creators, whatever, that try to be scaled. So they imitate some of those characteristics. So they try to write with the authoritative voice and the style guide of the Financial Times or whatever, or a Reuters piece. And so they're super bland. They don't have any personality. They try to imitate the big guys, but they don't have the brand. They don't have the legacy. They don't have... People won't go to them when stuff starts blowing up in some city. So it's a wasteland. And they never get to the scale to be able to afford all the journalists and all the infrastructure. And so they go bankrupt, basically. And on the other side of the smile curve are the tiny niche creators where... The differentiation is that the authenticity, this parasocial thing where it's like, okay, I'm getting some facts from you, but it's a relationship too with that person. When I'm listening to a CGP Grey podcast or YouTube video, I know the guy. It's interesting when he tells me about, oh yeah, hexagons have discs, whatever. He's another guy that's influenced me because he's following his curiosity. Some video could be about some 16th century thing, and the next one is about this Tesla, and the next one is about mathematical properties of hexagons. What's the link? The link is his personality. The link is I kind of like him. He's funny. He's interesting. So all the people in that part of the smile curve, that's what they've got going for them. They'll never get to the scale of a New York Times or whatever. One of them breaks out once in a while, like Joe Rogan or whatever. But also Joe Rogan, is, look at how many hours of podcasting he's been doing for a how long. At some point, it's like, is he breaking out? But is he also just reaping the rewards of compounding for much longer than everybody else? Like Buffett, he's been around so much longer than everybody else. So even if someone was as good as him, 
Well, if they've been doing it for 20 years and he's been doing it for 70 years, the difference is major. And I think that compounds. But anyway, so yeah, I think it's going to be this smile curve for a long, long time. I can't really imagine that the big thing can crush the tiny niche things because they're just not offering the same thing. It brings up a question about your brand. And at the moment, it's very tied to you, which makes a ton of sense, given that this is you following your curiosity and betting that there are people out there similar to you in which that bet has proven to be true. Have you thought about changing your brand? And I guess the comparison I make here is to something like Farnham Street, which is anchoring to Buffett and Munger, giving people a signpost of saying, hey, if you have fans of this, then you might be fans of the type of content they were going to create for you. Acknowledging that there are a lot of differences between you and what they do. Have you thought about putting a bigger flag in the ground to say, if you like this type of thing, then you might like what I do because I'm thinking around similar ideas and questions as these people? I'm going to guess no, because it hasn't happened. And if it had to happen, it would have happened organically just because I really liked it. And maybe if I found something that was this anchor, oh yeah, I'm crazy about this. And so I want to reach the others who are crazy about this. But there's not a single thing that's big enough in my mind space that I would just decide to anchor to it and make it explicit. When you were mentioning you're struggling to read physical books, something that resonates with me, children certainly put more challenges on your time in a great way. But I do wonder, as time goes on, obviously, people read fewer books. There's more consumption of either short-term media or other versions of media. And how do you think about that just in terms of your own consumption and creation, in terms of positioning yourself for what might be a massive sea change just in demand and fighting it is silly? Both sides, I'm curious about how you consume, but then also how you would create in that environment. So to go back to what we were saying, I think books are, they used to be a, both sides of the smile curve. 60 years ago, whatever, you could have The Godfather and everybody read it and it was a cultural thing. I think now there are still a few of those, but most books now are a more niche thing, which isn't bad. And I think books are still magical. Telepathy, someone could have spent a lifetime getting good at something and then they spend five years writing a book and I can download their words into my brain just by reading something for 15 bucks and that's magic to me. And it doesn't have the same impact as a podcast or reading a blog or a newsletter. It's very, very different. And I've been trying to think about why that is. So there's a podcast I love by Peter Atia. He's a medical doctor. He's talking a lot about biomedical stuff, but I also love, he's also going to follow his curiosity, right? Some episode could be about F1 racing or whatever. So I've been listening to him for seven years. And now he just came out with a book, which I've been reading. Almost everything that's in the book, I've heard him say over the years in some podcasts. But seeing it on the page, organized so well and the arguments follow and everything is one after the other. It's not like, oh yeah, I heard that three years ago and follow up this year. Seeing it on the page is making such a big impact on me that I'm making life changes because of reading that book that I had not made because of the podcast. And so I still think books are special. They can have an impact. They are good at injecting something in the conversation. Even if only 20,000 people read it, 50,000, they're the right 50,000 people. It's a self-selected group that if you're motivated enough to read the book, you're probably going to make some changes. You're going to talk about it with other people around you. You're a doctor. You're going to change your practice. You're going to change the conversation around some of these topics. And so a book has incredible leverage, a good book has incredible leverage in a way that a good podcast may not have. A podcast can do all kinds of other things very well, but I'm not quite ready to give up on the book format yet, which is why I want to read more of them because I feel like I'm still coasting on a bunch of books I've read before I had kids. I used to read so many books and now it feels like, well, my next favorite book is out there, but I'm not reading it. I have these shelves full of books. And so I've created the system where 
I've changed how I think about reading. I used to be like, okay, I have to find a few hours to read and go deep. And now I've spun that around where anytime I have 10 free minutes, I just get started. I read a few pages, even if it's just 10, better than nothing. And it gets me back in the habit. And a bunch of these 10 minute sessions turn out into 30 minutes, 60 minutes, and sometimes you get carried away. And so that's been helping lately to read more. But the other aspect with books is that the harder they are to read and the fewer people read them, the more differentiated you are if you do read them. In a good way? What's the hardest book you've read? No, in a good way, because you're going to get some information that others don't have. You're going to go deeper into topic. You're going to make connections. Well, maybe it's so hard to read. It's not a good book. Yeah, no, no, no. I just mean that it's harder than watching a TV show. Not necessarily it's hard to read because it sucks. But <laughs> David Senro is differentiated because he can read five hours a day and just keep doing it for years and years. But I think just in your field, whatever it is, or just not even to get ahead in your career or whatever, but just to have a richer mental life. I think reading is one of the best source there is. If you get one good idea from a book that costs you 15 bucks, it's such a bargain. Yeah, I actually agree with you. Because there are tons of times I will read a book just before going to bed, and it will make no sense to me. I'll have no idea what just happened. I'll read the exact same pages in the morning or at some point during the day, and it will have a profound impact or I'll think about different things that oh, I'll actually internalize and engage with the content that's been written. And that tends to be more business type books. And I think that idea actually crosses further into there are times in your life, if you read a certain book, it will have an impact on you. Whereas if you were to read them beforehand or after, it will have a much different impact. And so when people recommend this is the best book I've ever read, that's true on a personal level, but it might not be true for someone else because of what they have or haven't read up until that point or the point in their life. So I think context, particularly with books, but I guess every piece of media is hugely important. I'm not sure that's talked about quite enough. That's a really good point. And the way I think about it is that it's not quite the right analogy, but it's like the software changes, but the hardware stays the same. So if you think of the book as unchanging, the person reading it and interpreting it changes a lot. So you're different from the person recommending it to you, but you're also different over time. Just the no man steps in the same river twice. There's some books that I've reread 10 or 15 years apart, and they hit me completely differently because basically my brain was a different brain. I had a bunch of new experiences. I had different opinions about stuff, whatever. A bunch of stuff had changed. And so this is something I've changed my mind on over time. There used to be this thing where really into music too. And on the music forums, there are some people that they always listen to the same albums over and over again. And there's the others like, you're wasting your time. There's millions of albums you haven't heard. You just go explore new stuff. And this balance is important. And so sometimes rereading the same book that you've loved, that you know is profound, your brain won't remember everything in it. You're going to relearn some stuff just by refreshing your memory if you reread it. But you may also as a different person, get something totally different out of it. And it's the same for like TV shows. I've watched Deadwood maybe five or six times, but someone could tell me like, oh, you already know it has. It's like, no, no, no. A great TV show, a great album, a great book brings something to the human experience that is very underrated by a lot of very cerebral, career-focused people. Anything I do that's not bringing value is a waste of time. It's just entertainment. Entertainment is a huge part of life. And so you may as well find the very best quality entertainment that makes you go, on journeys to other worlds or live through all kinds of stuff through other people's eyes. And these experiences, even if they're fiction, they're real to you, to your brain, and they make you a richer person. So if you found something that really affects you deeply, now I don't have a problem with watching it multiple times. As long as I'm enjoying it, as I'm doing it, I don't care what other people think about it. As long as you get something out of the thing, if you find a book that you can reread 10 times and every time it makes you a better person, go for it. What books have you read that were really difficult to read that felt the most rewarding in the end? 
one answer comes to mind is the perfect answer. And it's one of those books that if you could make a ratio of books that people buy and never actually read, it's probably really up there. And so I want to preface this. I'm going to write down my guesses. It's a prestigious book in many ways. It's Godel Escherbach by Douglas Hofstadter. And it was hard to read. In the first, maybe fourth or third of the book, there's a bunch of math that I was bouncing off of it. It was too hard. It was like, ah. Uh, and I just stuck with it. And I was very careful not to skip over it because it would have been easy to say, I don't understand this part, but I'm just going to keep going because it builds on itself. And so if you miss some of the big points, it's not going to have the impact. And so I took my time. I made sure I understood it. And by the end of it, I thought there was Ofstadter wrote it as he was young, I think in his 20s, got the Pulitzer Prize for it. One of the most works of genius that I've seen is up there with Deadwood. <laughs> the book has, it's almost like a mission statement for the stuff I want to do because it's got science, it's got art, it's got all kinds of weird jokes. There's plays into it. There's anagrams and hidden things in the letters of the, because he laid out every page by hand and the book has to be printed a certain way for all of the jokes to work in the puzzles. There's plays where like Socrates is talking to Achilles and, and then it talks about Godel's theorems and artificial intelligence, but he builds up to it by making us understand how our brains work with consciousness as a loop where the thing models itself and isomorphism and all kinds of cool concepts that in my early 20s blew my mind and helped how I think about just how humans think and work. And it's not a textbook in that it tries to explain from a lab how every neuron works and all that, but it's more like a cool play of ideas. He's playing around with really interesting ideas in a way that's, I don't know, I've not seen elsewhere. So that would be the book I recommend. But the warning I gave at first, chances are you're going to find it very hard if you try this book. It's challenging, but because it's so challenging, it's one of those with the floor is high, but the ceiling is very high. So it's very rewarding if you read it. I had a very difficult time with Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance when I first read it. I think just stage of life, it was very, very dense for me and a few others that come specifically to mind. But my guess there was going to be Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace, a common one to purchase and not actually read by many people. But I will put that on the list. It'll probably sit on my bookshelf for a while or <laughs> however it's supposed to sit. Maybe it doesn't fit on a bookshelf. It'll impress your guests. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that's all it's for. Out of curiosity, do you have any in terms of paperback versus digital reading? Is there any preference for you? I used to read only on paper and then I switched only to ebooks for a while because I wanted to have the highlights because I was like, oh, it could be useful in newsletter. I put these quotes at the top. It felt like a utility thing. But I've been switching back to paper books because I find that I like reading better on paper. And now that I've signed up for the Readwise app, I can OCR all of my highlights and have them digitally so I get the best of both worlds. So now I'm team paper now. Massive cultural battle over paper versus ebook. And we're now at the stage of the life of ebooks where people have switched back and forth quite a bit. So it's quite impressive to monitor. If Amazon made better Kindles, maybe it would be a tougher choice, but they refresh slowly. The interface is clunky. It's hard to get books. Anyway, if I ran that division of Amazon, I could make a list of 20 things that could improve tomorrow and have a better product. That's a good transition to infinite media at OSV. <laughs> so if you could, you mentioned it earlier in terms of some of the things that you can't talk about that projects that you're excited to come out, if we could get from you the high level premise of what infinite media is, will be how you're thinking about it. And in relation to what you're already doing, what you said is very well linked. Absolutely. So at a high level, OSV as a whole, the way I see it is an extension of Jim O'Shaughnessy's brain. And so for media, there's a bunch of stuff, but 
basically Jim is seeing that a bunch of the old models are crumbling, they're falling apart. It used to be that you had a gatekeepers who decided what people could see and what couldn't see. There's a few publishers, there's a few TV channels, there's a few big studios. And if you want to make something that reaches people, you have to go through them because they own the trucks, they own the printing presses, the shelf space. You don't have a chance without them. And so they could dictate taste, they could extract all of the value. If you look at most big publishers' contracts, when you're buying that paperback that costs you $25, the author may be getting 10% of that, 12%. That's bonkers to me because while a publisher is adding value, they're not adding that much value to it. So what we're trying to do with Infinite Media is to create something for this new world, for this long tail, for this niche, this long, long tail of all these niches with great creators that are super authentic, super good at what they do, but they're under the radar. So if we can do good curation, if we can do good exploration, find these people, we can help them kick ass even more. Whatever they're needing, because some people are great at part of it, they're great at creating content, but they're not great at the logistics or the distribution or the marketing, the editing. They need more resources to go full-time. Maybe they're doing it part-time and they want to make a transition. There's all these reasons why someone like us can help a creator do better. Anything we do, we want it to be win-win. Whatever we add and we get in return, both sides need to feel like they're winning. So we're trying to do some of that across all mediums. So some of the things we do will be film, documentaries. There's going to be books. There's going to be all kinds of partnerships with, could be newsletter writers. It could be podcasters. It could be people doing video on YouTube or elsewhere films or TV shows for the big streamers, whatever. The medium is not the important part. The important part is the creator. Finding all these under-the-radar people that may be known in their niche, but maybe with a bit more rocket fuel or a bit more help or whatever, they can do even better. And that's super exciting because that's what I've been doing already. Just I put a spotlight on it, but now I can get to know them, work with them, figure out if they need something from us, if we can help them, if we can work together. And hopefully over time, as we get known as a curator with some taste, hopefully, if someone likes A and B that we've produced, that we've helped, that we've highlighted, well, they'll check out C and D. And, and so this can create this ecosystem, this family of creators that all benefit from being together and also working together. Because sometimes the right idea, the right time, the right connection, the right time, the right person to tell you the right advice can change everything about what you're doing. And so that's another thing we want to do is, well, Jim knows everybody. The OSV orbit has a lot of really talented people. And so if we can help them connect and find the people that they need for their thing, that's another great feeling. It's interesting in a similar way to being a Sherpa, but in a more evolved way where it's connecting back to a lot of people specifically beyond just ideas. And I think that's particularly interesting. Yeah, there's a great TV show that nobody has seen. So I'm going to recommend it here. It's called The Offer. It's on Paramount Plus, And it's about the making of the movie The Godfather. And most of it follows the producer of it. And it's such a creator's arc because a film, especially if you're talking about the mafia in those times, but film is like a startup. You're building a company. You have to find who's going to write it, who's going to shoot it, where are we going to, the locations, the people. You have to deal with so much logistics, so much stuff. It's really a startup. But the part of it that really resonated with me is as a producer, you're not holding the camera. You're not writing the script, but you're helping all these people work together and you're overseeing the thing and your taste is helping because Maybe you're not the director, but you picked the director. You made some decisions that helped the thing. And so I'm very, very far from that. But I like the idea of being just, I won't write something for someone else. But if I can help you as a producer floating above, what do you need? How can I help you with? That part really resonated with me. It makes a ton of sense. And I guess this kind of goes back through a lot of what we've talked about in this conversation. But in terms of that taste piece and finding under the radar creators, there's one thing in terms of finding a piece of content that's very good great creators tend to be ones that reproduce 
time and time again, good stuff. What do you look for? What are the hallmarks or where are you been searching for people that probably have got the right gene, but aren't necessarily found the distribution? I'm looking at it as two different buckets. And so the first bucket is more almost like a VC bucket where we find someone, we really love what they're doing, how they're thinking, their talent, but they haven't done it yet. And so we incubate them, we get them started, we help them with it. And that's a higher variance bet because the way I explain it is that I feel like over time, I've gotten pretty good at knowing when someone won't make it. And so if I look at someone's work and I get to know them a bit and I feel like I have confidence like 80, 90%, oh no, that person, they just won't make it. I feel like I have a pretty good track record on that. But on the other side, even if I find someone and yeah, they can make it, they have everything, it's still very uncertain because there are so many factors that are outside of anyone's control. Someone is amazing at all points, but then they burn out or some external factor makes it not happen. So I feel like we can filter a lot of people. Okay, you've got everything to do it. And now we want to help you try and we can incubate you and we start something and we see what happens. And that's the first bucket. The second bucket is more mature creators. They've already been doing it. They already have an audience. They have a track record. They've been doing it for years. And so we just want to help them do even better, bend the curve in the positive direction in some way by helping. And a lot of these, it's still hard to be sure because creation, especially if you're solo, is extremely difficult. It's much, much harder than most people would expect. People who listen to podcasts or read things, they may have some expectation of how hard it is to do. But if you don't do it day in and day out, week after week, year after year, it's hard to really know the level of commitment. And I don't know, it's just a very difficult thing. So what I'm seeing is a lot of these people, either they don't stick around long enough to reap the rewards of all this compounding of audience and skill. And with iteration, if you stick around something very long and you're good, you're going to go to a good place. But people don't. Any exponential curve for a long time, it looks flat. And so people almost always jump out of the train in that part of it, and they don't get to the part that starts climbing. And so a lot of them get out of the train from, I call it from below, but oh, they don't think they have enough audience. They run out of money. Something happens. They burn out. The honeymoon period lasts for a while. They have a bunch of ideas. They're excited, but then they have to do it in the third month and the fourth month and the fifth month. And people expect a new podcast, a new newsletter, a new YouTube video, and you're grinding it. And that's hard. And so they burn out until they leave that way. A lot of other people, a lot of very, very talented people, they leave from above, as I call it. They start a newsletter and they reach escape velocity. They make a name for themselves. Everybody knows them. And so they get hired by a hedge fund or they leave for a big media company or they use that just as a way to get to somewhere else. What I'm trying to find are people who are doing the thing for the thing itself, where the writing or the podcasting or whatever is the act that they're intrinsically motivated to do. They're not trying to use that as a stepping stone to go somewhere else. Maybe they've already tried all these other jobs and they suck. I don't want to wear a tie. I don't want to commute. I don't want to have a bus. They love researching stuff, but the stuff that interests them, it's not as fun if it's your boss telling you, hey, go research this CPG company. So a lot of these people, that are in the sweet spot middle, if they just stick with it, the compounding is going to do its job and they're going to be very successful a few years on the road. But it's a pattern matching skill to be able to get to know someone and figure out, are you one of these people that's going to stick with it? Or do you think you are, but you haven't met your low point yet? You haven't been tested. And as soon as it comes, it may break. Yeah, it sounds like you're doing some seed stage investing and maybe some series A, series B in terms of some product market fit with something that they're doing. I am curious about the seed stage. And to a similar extent, the when you have some creators that are already out there, one, where do you look to find these people who are maybe 
not doing the thing quite yet? Is it Twitter? Is it on podcast appearances? Is it in a particular place that you're finding them? I'll start with that question. So far, with the ones that we're working with right now, it's been Jim that has found them. Jim has an incredible radar. If you listen to Infinite Loops, his podcast, some of the guests in there, I've never heard somewhere else before. You look at their Twitter, they have like 3,000 followers. That's the sweet spot. And Jim somehow picked them out of the group and knew that that person had something special. And so Jim has an incredible radar to find talent. And so far, the people we're working with is exactly that. But that's my approach too. Could be anywhere. Could be anyone. Could be a friend of mine that recommends something cool that they saw. Could be, I read some newsletter. There's a link in there. I follow it. Hey, what's this? I've never seen this before. And whoa, it's amazing. And you realize that that person has something intangible but special that resonates, but they're not doing too much right now. Maybe they have a full-time job somewhere else. Hey, do you want to try to do more with this? If we could help you, if we could provide some of, and sometimes it's just advice. Creation is not a super capital intensive thing. Most people already have a, a computer, if you write, or buying a microphone. And all that stuff's not expensive. But getting the right advice, being pointed to the right places to figure out some of the big difficulties to get started, that can be what it takes sometimes. And then we'll wrap it up with this question, which I think all ties together in terms of finding those maybe more established creators that you want to make sure that it's the thing that they're really looking to do. Obviously, opportunities can come up but it's not a stepping stone. Do you think that's something that you can tease out? Do you think that's something that you can actually steer them towards where you encourage them to focus on that thing? And I think if you were the one to have them focus on that thing, given you've been doing this for a while and you have compounded, it would make a lot of sense. But how do you approach that? I would never want to try to change someone's mind about what they want to do because that's not going to last. So that wouldn't work. So it's more about, it's a judgment call, but trying to figure out if that's really what I want to do. Most of the time they tell you, oh, I've, I've tried everything, this is really what I want to do, but it's so hard, or I just need to get to that escape velocity. Oftentimes it's a transition where, well, if I leave that job, it may take a while for my X project to pay the bills. And in between, what do I do? And okay, maybe we can help you have that bridge right to the other side. But generally you can never be sure about that. It's always a judgment call. As anything that has to do with humans, it's going to be messy. You're going to make mistakes. But most of the time, even the mistakes there are, are not big mistakes. Oh, well, you don't want to do it after all. Nobody can force you to do it. If they did, it would suck anyway. So you want people that are so motivated. When you talk to David Senra, you don't get the feeling that he would take other opportunities. So that he's like the platonic ideal of a creator. You don't find many of those, but that's the spark that you're looking for. And if I can go on a tangent, in general, some of what we're trying to do with a lot of the creators we're working with we're selecting them because they're aligned with Jim and OSV's vision. And so we're very pro-progress and anti-dystopian and love science and arts and all that type of stuff. And one of the things that I strongly believe is that humanity in general is very limited by vision, not by talent. And so if we can amplify some of the people with that vision, anything that you see out there has started as a dream of someone, some idea. So I want to just have more of these dream generators that create cool visions for the future or just for the present, for what you can be, for who you can be, all that type of stuff is exciting to work on because it's so positive, so constructive. So if we can find people with that type of vision, most of the time, they also have a similar interesting motivation to just make a little mark somewhere, just make things a little better. So that's a good fuel that you may not find if, oh yeah, we want to sell more shoes this quarter and that stuff, it can work fine. 
but you don't get the same type of passion for a lot of it. Yeah, I've been reading a lot of Michael Crichton lately and that ending description there in terms of gym and dream generators and knowing your connection to AI just gave me an excellent plot for a future sci-fi novel here that we could lean into. But I do think everything that you've done is interesting. Everything that you're doing is interesting. And there's a lot of thought-provoking ideas that you introduce. Very tangible in some ways in terms of the actual content you're covering and the companies and the businesses and the markets, and then very philosophical as well. So hopefully this wide-ranging conversation has some flow to it and can be digested pretty well. But thank you very much for sharing all the insights. Thank you. Thank you for reading and thank you for having me. All right, Dom. I teased throughout that conversation how difficult it was to come up with an outline and questions. How do you think we're doing with the outlines and the flow of these conversations? Because this one was particularly in the magnifying glass for me. It was just tough to come up with the right way to approach that conversation. This has happened to me a few times in my life. But the best comparison I can give it is when I learned to parallel park. In the US, your parking bays are probably too wide. You don't need to parallel park. But in the UK, they're quite small. And parallel parking is a real challenge on a busy road. And when you learn, you learn literally the process. You've got to get your wheels in the right position. You've got to turn one go. You need to get to a certain degree. All of these things, which you follow until you pass. And then in that honeymoon period after passing, you think you're the world's best driver. So you don't follow any of the rules and you fail to parallel park. And then you get this realization a few months later. So I used to be able to do this and why can I not do it anymore? And it's probably because you are not following the process anymore and you overestimate your abilities. I wonder whether we're in a similar spot with our podcast because our prep was it used to be like pretty well defined. I knew what questions you were going to ask. You knew what I was going to ask. And as time has gone on, we've become more arrogant, I would say, in our prep in terms of we're going to go with a more of a flow. Let's just get into the flow of the conversation. I'm sure good questions will come to us. And I don't think necessarily the conversations are bad, but it's just it's harder to read the room as to know what's coming next from you or what I'm about to give. So I don't know if that was the answer you were looking for, but that's how I'm thinking about it. We're definitely more ad hoc than when we started. Well, the parallel parking analogy was quite the one to pull out of your pocket. And it's interesting because I, at one point, considered myself the master of parallel parking in New York City. And despite your disparaging us Americans and having extra space in our parking spots, we do actually have cities as well and tight parking spaces. And for the longest time, I used to just brush off any type of fear or stress about parallel parking until one day... I thought I could get into a spot and I couldn't. And then it was six weeks where I had the yips. And I'm talking about all types of issues where I was literally turning the wheel the wrong way and it totally played with my mind. So you just triggered this PTSD while mocking us for our parking space sizes. And I have to wonder, I can't let the same thing happen to me with podcast questions. Oof, man. No, we're definitely not in the yip stage, but I feel I'm glad I'm not the only one that went through the same pain. Yeah, this was difficult. And I think you get into your own head because we were staring at the system. We had a lot of good questions, what I thought were good questions, but we wanted this to be a particularly unique conversation with Liberty. And that's the bit where we were getting really hung up on. But I think during the course of the conversation, he gave us the answer that we needed ahead of the conversation in terms of just do what fills you up. Find the things that give you curiosity. Don't worry too much about all of this other stuff and ask those questions in the order that they come to you during the time. So Maybe this isn't anything like parallel parking. And actually, there should be less of a process. I think the exact line was the best way to be interesting is to be interested, which was quite a good line and I think is quite accurate. 
And I think you're right. I think the struggle is you want to differentiate the conversation from the other conversations that he's had. At the same time, many people may not have listened to that guest. So a lot of the focus on this may be in terms of the art of the interview rather than the conversation itself. But yeah, it's a tricky one. And it probably is. I think he was saying throughout the conversation, it's the sign that is a good conversation because if the questions were easy to answer, then whatever. But at one point, I don't think that we've gotten worse. I think we've just realized you can outline questions that you're going to ask. But what ends up happening is the person ends up answering the questions that you ask. And for the record, we did have a long list of questions we were going to ask. We just didn't assign them to people. Yeah. And what I found as well, if you write down questions ahead of time, invariably every question you write down looks stupid. It's so true. I hadn't considered that, but it's very, very true. You write a question, you're like, what? that question is ridiculous. Because obviously you write the question. And as you write the question in your guest's voice, you're trying to answer it as well, but you don't have a good answer to it. So you just think the question's naff. So it's, I think that's part of the challenge is getting over. And all of this, as we're realizing, is in our own heads. So we probably need to figure that out first. We need to go to a therapy session about asking questions in podcasts. Because once you're there and you have to ask a question, you stop thinking about whether this is a good or bad question. Like, I need to insert something here. And so let me just go for it. I like the making observations and letting them answer those observations too. I think that's probably an underrated thing that we can lean into as well. Yeah, I've never heard Patrick say that. And as you were saying it, I was like, there's probably a reason why he's never had to go to that line in such desperate times. Well, not everybody spells out what they're doing. We're trying to help people out, even if that gives away some of the magic. That's the ultimate goal here, help people out. Any other high-level takeaways? I just think there's more unknown than known about exactly what Liberty is doing. He's probably the person that I've mentioned the most on this podcast, just in terms of being an interesting Sherpa guide, whatever it is. But whether it relates to creators, curators, individuals versus brands, any bigger takeaways? The biggest thing that I think I take from it, his internal motivation is so strong. He's the only one really who can tell you, and he can't even explain himself, what he's doing or what this thing that he's doing actually is. It's very squidgy and nebulous. And when you read his stuff, it is all over the place. And then when you talk to him, he says that he explains it in that way. And I think that's right. But it gives me a lot of... It makes me happy to talk to people who are very happy to be opaque and it's not easy to pigeonhole them and say, you do this thing. And he's like, no, I don't want to do that thing. And actually, I don't know what I'll be writing about next week or next year or whatever. And so it's hard to describe people like that. But from them, you know that they're enjoying it because they're just literally following their curiosity, which is a phrase that probably gets said too often. But I think in his case, it's very much true. Yeah, there's almost this interesting distinction. I was going to say people that are misunderstood, but it's not that they're misunderstood. There's just no way to describe it, which is very different than being misunderstood where you're applying this label or defining something. I think things that are difficult to define is probably the right way to put your finger on it. And I'm glad that makes you happy to talk to people that are happy. Don't be disparaging. No, I just, it was two words that I didn't expect or one word that I didn't expect repeated twice. That's fair enough. What about you? You've been following Liberty for a long time, subscribing to his stuff. You've even been on his podcast which I would recommend people listen to if you've watched The Last of Us. It's a very interesting episode. Even I learned a lot more than I probably should have from that episode. But yeah, what were your reflections? I just, he's somebody I greatly enjoy. I think I'm attracted to people who I can follow and they're going to introduce me to new things. And I feel like I'm always learning just by being exposed to them. So I have only been building engagement with him over time. I think you often talk about 
you're surprised at my willingness to email people when they write interesting things and compliment people directly about interesting things they write. Liberty is somebody who I do that with frequently when he writes something interesting. And it's neat to see how that's evolved into a relationship over time. So I just think if you can find these types of people and they exist in so many different ways, his is just the most unique to me because it's so wide ranging. I have certain sports people that I will listen to. I know I'm going to get most of the interesting sports headlines and updates from Bill Simmons on a Monday morning. Liberty, it's harder to find exactly what he's introducing me to, but introduces me to a lot. Yeah, I agree with that. I was going to insert a very like record scratching question at one point about his investing style when he just invested for himself for a good decade. And he was all before that he was saving between 50 and 70% of his income to invest. I was going to ask a question, what was your portfolio construction risk appetite like during that period? Were you looking to make money, pay yourself from dividends or other cash flow from your investments? I was kind of curious about that. But I thought that that would be a complete 90 degree move in the midst of the conversation. You've got to follow your curiosity. I think that would have been a very valuable question. Round two, maybe. I would like that is a very interesting life decision. And I know there's this fire movement that he alluded to that does a similar thing. But to completely say, I want total freedom in my life. And I imagine he had some interesting conversations with his partner at the time about whether that was or was not a sensible decision. I think that really digging in on that specific point in time and how what it was like, he was writing copious amounts of notes to himself effectively. And we could have asked the question about what did it feel like when you started to put these out into the wild? Was that a better feeling to begin with or a worse feeling because you were shouting into the wind? Or maybe this should be the process for our podcast. We should do this and then come up with questions ahead of time. I'm wondering why you didn't bring any of this up before we record because these are all interesting things. And I was banging my head against the wall looking for feedback. And it seems like you have quite a few good questions, good ideas, and things that I'm sure people would all be interested in hearing about. Already for round two. Yeah, I think I take back any of the compliments that I made about our process. These things are supposed to be at the start, not at the end. The other thing is the question you did start with in terms of longevity and the discussion about maybe not everything needs to last forever. And then towards the end, when he was talking about creators and infinite media and what they were doing there in terms of people who get off the train too early when they're about to hit that inflection point on the compounding curve. The two counterpoints there to the same thing were really interesting to me. And I know people talk about how paradoxes are the most interesting things in the world, because if there's something that seems like it can be true both at the same time, there's probably something there that is super interesting to drill down on. But that, I don't have any answers here. That concept of like whether you should try and do something forever or whether you should go in with the mindset that, like, I'm just going to give this a go and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, is really fascinating. Yes, I agree. And I think there's different categories. The reason he was originally writing about that was related to his aura ring, which is like a sleep statistics that you get. And he was basically saying he was likely not going to re-up it. And it was okay. It provided him value at a certain point. Didn't provide him as much value now. I extended it when I replied to him directly via email, like I've been known to do sometimes, that I think it's a really interesting concept. And I brought up the liquid death IPO, where everybody is panning this company, they're selling water, really expensive, it's going to be the next bubble, yada, yada, yada. But maybe that's a great example of a product which will have a very specific life cycle, will probably generate a lot of cash. And if the managers are reasonable with that cash, they might allocate it properly, which might just mean sending it back to the investors. And that could still be considered excess. So not every experiment has to last forever. And because it doesn't last forever does not mean it's not successful. I think that's like another piece of it. So I think that is also the question. If I continue to do this for an extended period of time, is there some type of compounding that will come on the end of it? Or is that 
not the game that I want to play. And I think there's something related to compounding versus just doing something that you're losing any excitement over. Yeah. And it's very similar to the age old question investing. Everyone talks about when to buy, but when to sell is harder. Does everybody talk about that? I don't think everybody talks about it. Everyone, literally everyone I know. We must be swimming in different circles. No, I asked the question and I got zero good examples of books about when to sell. I sent you an article. Maybe it wasn't good. That's the feedback I'm getting in real time. I didn't realize that you replied, but I'll stand by my comment that there were no good responses to my question. So it's the last time I tweet at you. The paradoxes thing, though, funny enough, he wrote about paradoxes in a very recent issue as well. So yes, age old question. I could also go on a whole episode on aura rings and whoop bands and the whole tracking your fitness thing. I laugh every time I see athletes wearing whoop bands because I just sit. I know they're probably all getting paid, but there is no, I see no benefit in wearing one after, and he wrote this, which again, made me happy. After you've done it, worn one for two, three weeks, you've gotten all the use that you'll ever get out of it. So a subscription based on that is good business, but it's bad decision-making from a personal standpoint. This is me crossing Whoop out as a potential sponsor of Making Media and Aura. Cue all my DMs. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's a lot to that in terms of over-analyzing and over-quantifying our lives. But there's use and doesn't have to be forever. I'll leave it at that. Any closing thoughts? No, I'm excited for... I really was curious about Infinite Media and what Jim and Liberty are going to do with that property. Because if you go on the website, there's very little there. So I was very curious about what's going on and I'm intrigued to see how it is deployed. Yeah, a lot of interesting stuff going on there and I'm tracking it closely. I think what he said about Jim finding very interesting people is 100% accurate. Yeah, Patrick does that as well. It's a real art form and I'm very impressed by it. Well, it's been a pleasure. We got the next appointment coming into the shed, so (laughs) we can log off now. We're out. All right, thanks, teams. I'll see you next week. Bye.